You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 194, The Battle of Ushant. After Britain and France went to war in the spring of 1778, America became a sideshow to the main event. Britain and France had been traditional enemies for centuries. Part of it was the whole Catholic-Protestant rift that had divided Europe. Part of it was conflicting claims over each other's countries. George III still held the title of King of France, a claim that dated back more than 400 years. Although the channel kept the two kingdoms separated, there was a continuing rivalry between the two countries that simply would not end. In the prior decades, most of the fighting had been over colonies around the world. Britain and France traded colonies in wars back and forth. North America was only one pawn in that larger game of chess. In the hundred years prior to this war, Britain and France had faced off in at least five major wars, which totaled 39 years of fighting. These were a continuation of centuries more fighting between these two kingdoms. During the Seven Years' War, the British Navy had dominated the French at sea. This was a big reason why France lost North America. In the intervening years, France focused on rebuilding her navy to compete with the British. France, which had three times the population of Britain, thought that Britain could fall if France could crush its navy. The first major naval engagement took place in the English Channel. The fight took place about 100 miles west of the island of Ushant. The battle gets its name from the island because, well, calling it a battle in the middle of the ocean just doesn't have the same ring to it. The two fleets were pretty evenly divided, each having about 30 ships of the line, plus some smaller vessels. The battle was not particularly decisive, but it does give me an opportunity to talk about the two navies and the role they played in Britain and France. To help with that background, I want to talk more about the two fleet commanders who fought the Battle of Ushant, Admiral Augustus Keppel and Admiral Louis Guillouet, the Comte d'Ovier. In 1778, the 58-year-old Admiral Keppel was a highly experienced officer with over four decades at sea with the British Navy. His grandfather had immigrated to Britain from the Netherlands as a top aide to William of Orange. When William and Mary took the throne in Britain, Keppel continued his service to the new king and received an appointment as the first Earl of Albemarle. The second Earl of Albemarle, Admiral Keppel's father, continued to serve the crown as a British diplomat and was a friend of King George II. The Earl commanded British forces at Culloden, putting down the Jacobite Rebellion in Scotland. After Culloden, he served as a military commander in Scotland, putting the area under tight military control and effectively destroying the Highlander leadership that had ruled Scotland for so many centuries. He also served as governor of Virginia, although he never bothered to actually visit the colony. The Earl married Lady Anne Lennox, who would become Admiral Keppel's mother. She was the daughter of the first Earl of Richmond, who was in turn the illegitimate son of King Charles II. So, despite the family only having arrived in Britain two generations earlier, 
Keppel was tied to some of the most important families in Britain. Keppel, however, would not inherit his father's title. That would go to his older brother, George Keppel, who fought in the Seven Years' War and eventually became a general. His brother would die relatively young, but not before bearing a son, William, who would take the family title. Augustus Keppel went to sea in 1735, when he was only nine or ten years old. He served on a variety of ships as he grew to adulthood. His early adventures as an ensign included service in the Mediterranean under Commodore George Clinton, the father of future General Sir Henry Clinton. He also participated in a cruise around the world, during which he became an acting lieutenant at age 16. Just over two years later, as the War of Austrian Succession began, Keppel, at age 19, became captain of his first ship. Keppel continued to do well as a commander, and by the end of the war, he was a commodore of his own small fleet. In 1754, Keppel served briefly as commander-in-chief of North America and had the responsibility of delivering Major General Edward Braddock with his army to Virginia, where they would press British claims in the Ohio Valley. Around this same time, Keppel's father died, moving his brother George to the House of Lords. Captain Keppel took the family seat in the House of Commons, but as the Seven Years' War began, Keppel returned to the fleet. In his second war, Keppel once again performed with distinction, leading the line of battle against the French, along with Captain Richard Howe at the Battle of Kiberon Bay in 1759. Later, he would command the Jamaica Station with a fleet of ships and would oversee the return of Cuba to the Spanish at the end of the war. Following the end of the war, Keppel returned to London, where he received appointments as Lord of the King's Bedchamber and also as a Lord of the Admiralty. He retained his seat in Parliament, although he didn't speak much unless the issue involved naval matters. Keppel did line up politically, however, with the Whigs, who opposed the administration's policies in North America. His political views resulted in him losing most of his political appointments and finding himself without any naval command when the American Revolution began. In January of 1778, with war with France imminent, the Crown once again needed his skills as a naval commander. He received appointment as Admiral and took command of a fleet at Portsmouth. There, he had to rush to repair ships and assemble a crew to face the new French threat. His fleet put out to sea in search of French fleets. The fleet that he would find was commanded by Louis Guet the Comte d'Herville. The Comte d'Herville came from a noble French family. His father served as governor of French Guiana, which is where he grew up. At the time, the South American outpost was tiny, with only a few hundred colonists and a few thousand slaves. It changed hands several times between the French, the British, and the Dutch over the course of its history. As a young teenager, D'Herville joined the militia. At age 18, he opted to join the Navy and go to sea. The young officer served with distinction in the War of Austrian Succession and visited various parts of the French Empire, including the Antilles and Canada. By the beginning of the Seven Years' War, he had captained several ships and had commanded several small fleets. 
Because Dorville did not have family or other close connections at Versailles, his move up the ranks in the Navy was rather slow. Even so, he married the daughter of his fleet commander and began to move up in rank. In 1757, his fleet traveled to Louisbourg to help end the British siege there. Despite the weaknesses of the French Navy in the Seven Years' War, Tourville came out with his reputation intact. He became a commander in the Order of Saint-Louis and had become a key leader in France's naval elite. He was by this time, though, getting up in years. In 1778, Dorville was 68 years old, but commanded a fleet of ships protecting the French coast. On July 8, 1778, Vice Admiral de Comte d'Orville left Brest on the coast of France. His fleet of 32 ships of the line and nine frigates had sailed into the Atlantic in hopes of disrupting trade between Britain and its colonies. At the same time, British Admiral Keppel was tasked with finding and destroying the French fleet in order to keep Britain's trade routes open. Keppel originally left Portsmouth in June with a handful of ships in search of the enemy. While at sea, he was able to stop a ship that told him that the French had a fleet of 32 ships of the line at Brest. Now that was more than double what Keppel expected to find. So he turned around and went back to Portsmouth looking for reinforcements. Now Britain at this time had overextended its navy with all the fighting going on around the world. Lord Sandwich tried to maintain a calm demeanor and had assured Parliament that they had dozens of ships of the line just ready to go. Keppel found the reality was that there were only six ships ready for service when he took command at Portsmouth in May. When he set out again on July 9th, the day after Duvoil had set sail, Keppel had collected a fleet of 24 ships of the line. A few days later, six more ships joined his fleet already at sea. After about two weeks at sea, the two fleets caught sight of each other about a hundred miles west of Ushant. The French had expected to find a much smaller fleet. So, even though the two fleets were about equal in size, the French began evasive maneuvers. Two of the French ships managed to sail right back to Brest before the French got in between the fleet and the French coast. For the next few days, both fleets sailed southwest with the French trying to keep the British at a distance. On the morning of July 27th, the winds shifted and the fleets were only a few miles apart. British second-in-command Admiral John Campbell ordered a contingent of the fleet that was under the command of the third-in-command, Admiral Sir Hugh Palliser, to sail toward the French fleet. Now, Admiral Palliser, who was also a Lord of the Admiralty, had not been given notice of these orders and took offense when he found out that another admiral had ordered part of his fleet into battle. Ships on both sides had trouble getting into position. Soon, shifting winds and a fog that limited visibility made the lines a complete mess. Now, for those unfamiliar, a ship of the line gets its name from the fact that traditional naval formation at the time was to form the ships up in a line one after another and the two lines of enemy ships would pass by each other. As they sailed past, the gunners would fire broadsides from the side of the ship that was facing the enemy. The point of sailing in a line was to inflict maximum repeated damage and firepower on the enemy ship as each ship in the line sailed past. 
usually the goal was to get the side of your ship with all of its cannons pointing at the enemy ship while the enemy ship was out of position so that they could not easily fire back. To do all this, good formations were absolutely critical to success. You also wanted to try to stay upwind of the enemy so that you could more easily get into formation faster than the enemy could. So, as I said, on this day, the formations for both sides were a complete mess. By the time the fog cleared enough for them to see the enemy, the two fleets were practically on top of each other. A confused firefight raged for about two hours. Palliser's ships took the brunt of the French fire, while Keppel's flagship, the Victory, went after the French flagship. As the fleets jockeyed for position, D'Urville ordered an attack on the five most damaged British ships. The French captains, however, were slow to respond, and the British realized what they were trying to do. Keppel repositioned his ships to protect the damaged ships and continue the battle. Later in the battle, Keppel individually signaled the ships under Palliser's command and ordered them to join his lines, thus once again cutting Palliser out of the chain of command. Eventually, darkness fell. Keppel spent the night working on repairs and keeping an eye on the French fleet nearby. At dawn the following day, the British realized that the lights from the French ships came from only three ships. The rest of the French fleet had sailed away that night and were making their way into Brest. Keppel figured he could at least capture the three damaged ships left behind, but he discovered that those three ships were in relatively good condition and that they were three of the fastest French ships, and they quickly escaped the pursuing British. In terms of damage done, the French seemed to come out of the fight a little bit better. Fighting from the previous day had resulted in about 400 British dead and 800 wounded. Now, no ships had been sunk, but most of them had to limp back to Portsmouth for repairs. The French reported 126 killed and just over 400 wounded. All of their ships also managed to return to port for repairs. So, by most accounts, the battle was pretty much considered a draw. Following the return of the French fleet to Brest, Dorville permitted one of his officers, the Duc de Chartres, to deliver the news of the battle to Paris and Versailles. The Duke was a distant cousin of the king. He arrived early in the morning and requested the king be awoken so that he could announce the victory. Great celebration of the French victory at sea swept across Paris. A few days later, when Dorville's official reports arrived, French officials not only learned that the battle was at best indecisive, but that Dorville was critical of the Duc de Chartres' failure to obey orders to engage the enemy. While his relation to the king protected him from court-martial, the event effectively ended Chartres' military career. The two French captains from the fleet who had fled back to Brest days before the rest of the fleet fought the battle faced a court of inquiry. Captain Rochecourt came from a powerful French family and was cleared of all charges. Captain Tremigeau was admonished but continued to serve. He would actually go on to command a much larger ship later in the war, but would be killed in battle. If the reaction to the battle in France was sort of a confused mess, the reaction to the battle in London was a much, much larger confused mess. Keppel was unhappy with the performance of Palliser. But since Admiral Palliser was a Lord of the Admiralty and a favorite of Lord Sandwich, 
Keppel decided to be political about the matter and praised Palliser in his reports to the Admiralty. He thought that a critical report would only divide the ranks at a time when everyone should be united in the war effort. If he had kept his big mouth shut, he probably would have ended the matter there and everyone would have been happy. But Keppel spent some time bad-mouthing Palliser's performance to his Whig friends around London in unofficial conversations. Keppel and Palliser were both members of Parliament who sat on opposing political factions, although they had been on pretty good terms personally up until this time. In October, Palliser heard the rumors circulating that Keppel was critical of Palliser's performance during the battle. A Whig newspaper had published articles which vaguely accused Palliser of cowardice or intentionally sabotaging the battle for political reasons. Palliser confronted Keppel and demanded that he sign a document praising his contact at Ushant. Keppel, of course, refused. In response, Palliser published his own version of events in Tory newspapers. His account stated that Keppel's actions in the battle were worthy of censure. The dispute between the two officers blew up in Parliament, creating greater divisions between the political factions. The Earl of Bristol in the House of Lords called on the Earl of Sandwich to conduct an inquiry into the charges. Sandwich still hoped the whole thing would blow over. He argued that Bouchant was pretty much a British victory and that the leaders should not be squabbling with each other. He also got Keppel to keep his mouth shut, saying no more than that he was content with the course and the result of the battle, although he did say that he would never serve with Palliser again. Palliser would not let the matter go. He said that he had nothing to fear from a court of inquiry and that he had obeyed all of Keppel's commands that day. Now, that was just too much for Keppel, who then made clear that Palliser had refused to respond to his flag to join the fleet after it had been flying for five hours. With that, Palliser got approval from Sandwich to bring charges against Keppel. The charges accused Keppel of failing to marshal his fleet, fighting in an unofficer-like manner, making scandalous haste in quitting, making sail away from the enemy, and giving them an opportunity to rally, and presenting the appearance of a flight disgraceful to the British flag. Now, these charges were reminiscent of charges brought 20 years earlier against Admiral John Byng. In that instance, Admiral Byng had fought a half-hearted battle against the French at Menorca before retreating back to Granada. Keppel, as a younger officer, had sat on a court-martial that found Admiral Byng guilty and sent him to the firing squad. Since Bing had been a Tory and Keppel was a Whig, some saw this as a time potentially for some political payback. So Admiral Keppel was literally fighting for his life. Most Whigs saw the trial as a despicable political attack. Some naval officers took leave and refused to fight while the trial proceeded. In January 1779, the Navy conducted its inquiry against Admiral Keppel. Most of the ship captains who participated in the battle served as witnesses at trial and mostly backed Keppel. The court exonerated Keppel and generally pointed the finger at Palliser for his failures on that day. The acquittal of Keppel brought celebrations in the streets of Portsmouth. In London, these celebrations turned violent as a mob used it to highlight their unhappiness with the ministry. A mob broke the windows at Lord North's residence. They attacked other Tory homes, 
and specifically broke into Pallister's house at in the Pall Mall neighborhood, removing his furniture to start a bonfire in St. James's Square. They also burned Pallister in effigy at Tower Hill and tore down the gates of the Admiralty. All over England, pubs painted portraits of Admiral Keppel on their signs as a symbol of opposition to government policy and support of the Whigs. Sandwich eventually persuaded Palliser to resign his government offices and his seat in Parliament. But by this time, the Whigs were smelling blood. They condemned the Admiralty for failing to provide Keppel with proper intelligence and support before the battle, then unfairly blaming him for a less-than-complete victory. The House also narrowly voted down a motion to kick Palliser out of the Navy. The King even suggested that Lord North might consider replacing Sandwich with Admiral Howe, who had recently returned from America. North demurred and stood by his First Lord of the Admiralty. In April 1779, though, with pressure still blowing, the Navy bowed to pressure and court-martialed Palliser. Whigs accused the Admiralty of stacking the deck in this court-martial in favor of Palliser by sending out to sea all the officers who were against Palliser and putting only his friends on the court-martial. Keppel, though, also just really wanted this matter to go away at this point. He refused to prosecute the case against Palliser and only appeared as a reluctant witness. The court-martial became more of a court of inquiry that, in the end, exonerated Palliser with only a few minor errors in judgment. The Keppel affair revealed growing political cracks in the British government that only got worse over time. It also created divisions among naval officers that left scars for a generation. For a relatively indeterminate naval battle that did not sink a single ship, the Battle of Ushant would have political ramifications that would last for years. Next week, we're going to turn to another court-martial, this one in America, as Charles Lee must answer for his behavior at the Battle of Monmouth. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey! Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Now, I mention these four names each week, and it's almost become a matter of routine, but these guys have stepped up to support this podcast at the highest level on Patreon. They've become critical to covering much of my costs. And while I often say that even a contribution of a few dollars a month helps, 
These large contributors are a huge help to me and this podcast. Even though I thank them each week, I did want to stress how much their support matters and how much I appreciate it. Also thanks to Mike Hager for his support at the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. The Robert Morris Circle is also for high donors. It's the second highest level on Patreon. When I first set up a Patreon account, I never dreamed that people would be this generous to support my podcast at these levels. And I really didn't even bother to set up these levels until much later. But their support has allowed me to avoid putting annoying commercials into my podcast, something I hope everyone appreciates. I also want to thank Edward Diaz, who subscribed on Subscribestar. I set up Subscribestar as an alternative for Patreon because some contributors expressed a distaste for some of Patreon's policies. So Subscribestar is an option if you don't like Patreon. You get exactly the same benefits as you would if you subscribed on Patreon, including the flag magnets that I send out each month for donations of $10 or more. I will note that Subscribestar does not automatically collect a payment each month without your specific approval, so this is good for you if you don't like automatic payments, although I admit it's not great for me since most of my Subscribestar subscribers end up paying for a month or two before giving up. Patreon also lets me keep a slightly larger percentage of each donation. So, in my mind, I prefer Patreon, but of course, you're welcome to contribute however you like. I also, of course, am set up to receive one-time gifts via PayPal and Venmo, a few others, but those two are the most popular. And you can find the details, if you want to do that, on my website or my blog. I appreciate everyone who helps get the word out by leaving five-star reviews, or mentioning the American Revolution podcast on social media. Although the podcast has already exceeded my wildest expectations, I still kind of hope it will continue to grow. More and more of the most successful podcasts out there have corporate sponsorships or are in networks. Indie podcasts like this one are under real pressure as we fight for an audience, but I really hope there remains a place for podcasts like this one. Now this week I covered a naval battle between the British and French fleets that did not involve the Americans at all. Now, although my podcast has an obvious American-centric viewpoint, these battles had a big impact on the war overall. This battle also had a lasting impact on both France and Britain. One of the French officers I mentioned almost in passing would go on to bigger things. The Duc de Chartres, whose naval career ended after Ushant, went on to become a radical Jacobin during the French Revolution. He would inherit his father's title of the Duc d'Orléans, but when it became unfashionable to use such titles in revolutionary France, he took up the name Philippe Égalité. If you're familiar with the French Revolution, you've probably heard the name Philippe Égalité before. He became a leading advocate for the principles of the Revolution and was a strong advocate for the rights of the poor. All this, unfortunately, was not enough to save him when his son, who was a French general, plotted to visit with Austrian leaders. Philippe Egalité condemned his son on the floor of the National Assembly, but having a traitor son was still enough to see him arrested, tried, and sent to the guillotine during the Reign of Terror in 1793. His son, who had tried to speak with the Austrians, was Louis-Philippe, and he escaped into exile. 
After the Restoration, he would go on to become King Louis-Philippe of the French in 1830. In Britain, the Palliser-Keppel dispute would impact the course of the Royal Navy for generations. Palliser would win re-election to Parliament for a few years, but he had no naval command. Instead, he received a financially lucrative appointment as governor of Greenwich Hospital. Despite the lack of any naval command, nearly a decade later, his friends in government rewarded him with a promotion to full admiral. Keppel also left active duty shortly after the affair ended. He retained his seat in Parliament and, after the North Ministry fell, became First Lord of the Admiralty, a Viscount, and a member of the Privy Council. All of these offices were short-lived, as he resigned them a few months later, objecting to the peace treaty that recognized American independence. He died less than three years later. Admiral Keppel pub signs remained all over the country for well into the 20th century, and a few even to this day. Few people remember that the origin of these signs was opposition to British policy in America. If you want to read more about the British Navy around Britain during the Revolution, well, there's a book for that. This week's book recommendation is The Royal Navy in European Waters During the American Revolutionary War by David Surrett. As you might surmise from the book title, the book focuses on the Royal Navy in Europe during the American Revolution. There's a whole chapter on the Keppel Affair, but it also looks at later events as British and French naval fighting heats up over the course of the war. It's not a very long book, about 170 pages, not counting notes and index, but it makes the point that British missteps in its use of the Navy sowed the seeds of failure in the Revolution. Unlike earlier wars, Britain could not very well control the flow of arms, supplies, and even European soldiers from the European continent to America. The author, David Surrett, is the son of historian Harold Surrett, who you may know from his work editing the Alexander Hamilton Papers. David's focus has been more on the British Navy over a series of various books. David Surrett published this book in 1998, while he was still a professor at Queen's College in New York. Sadly, Professor Surrett died in 2004. As I said, it's a short and succinct book, but gives good coverage to this important but overlooked aspect of the Revolutionary War. If you don't want to buy it, there's also a borrow for the book on archive.org. Again, the title is The Royal Navy in European Waters During the American Revolution. My online recommendation this week is an online book that was published in 1779 called The Trial of the Honorable Augustus Keppel. This is one of those current event books that was rushed out right after the trial to an interested public. The publisher is one of my favorite English radicals of the time, John Wilkes. Because it was published at the time, it relies on primary sources and actual witnesses to the events. If you are interested in this topic, you'll want to check out this one. You can search for Honorable Augustus Keppel on archive.org, or you can use the direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution Podcast.